Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Sir Catchick Paul Chater started off in Hong Kong as a teenager working in a bank. His childhood was in Calcutta, but orphaned early, he would come to Hong Kong to join a sister. Chater is responsible for large parts of the early reclamation. He was the father of Hong Kong land and was involved in land, transport such as trams and ferries. He was chairman of the jockey club and was the first to see the potential of Kowloon. And yet, do you know, not a single biography has been written about him. So, in the next two programmes, his distant relative, Liz Chater, in southern England, tells a story of this foresighted businessman, politician and philanthropist. Liz has been investigating Chater for the past 16 years. This year is the 170th anniversary of his birth. It's also the 90th anniversary of his death. He was the business partner and friend of Sir Homosji Modi, and both of them helped finance the University of Hong Kong. On a recent trip to the UK, I met up with Liz Chater, who's done some great work in charting the life of this illustrious entrepreneur. Over the next two programmes, Liz tells me about Chater's beginnings and his later business ventures in Hong Kong. He was referred to with affection as the grand old man in the obituaries and editorials which filled nearly three pages of the China Mail on the day of his death, the 27th of May, 1926. And we'll hear parts of those tributes in the programmes. Sir Catchick Paul Chater, more than any other in those early days of the colony, had reshaped Hong Kong. A prince of charity. Hong Kong has suffered another great loss. Sir Paul Chater, the prince of charity, passing away this morning at five o'clock after an illness lasting about two months. With Lady Chater, who is at present in the colony, and his nephew, Mr J.T. Bagram, and other relatives, the utmost sympathy will be felt. There will be a service in St John's Cathedral this afternoon at 4.45, and the cortege will pass the monument at 5.30. On Sunday, a public memorial service will be held in St Andrew's Church, Kowloon. As a mark of respect, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange is closed today. Only distantly, very, very distantly related. I mean, there's lots of other relatives who are much closer, but I'm the one who's got the bit between her teeth and just completely fascinated by this man's life. And even just this week, I am still discovering things that I have never found out before. I've been waiting probably for about five months, waiting for some records to come from Hong Kong PRO. Public Records Office. Public Records Office. They arrived this week and I did my first superficial scan through them and I was really thrilled with the amount of information I've got available to me to thoroughly analyse. But one of the things that struck me as just majorly catastrophic was that both Marble Hall and Buxley Lodge actually could have been saved by the government in 1947 after the war. I'm just annoyed that they were ever so short-sighted. So Marble Hall and Buxley Lodge were both places... Then. Yeah, after after Sir Paul Chater died, he left Marble Hall, his um, very large house, about 59,000 square feet. I mean, can you imagine a property <laughs> like that in Hong Kong now? <laughs> and where was it? Um, it was mid-levels. Um, so it had a beautiful position. It was overlooking, I mean, he could see at that point, he, it was overlooking uh, Statute Square and, and, and the waterfront. Obviously, it wasn't so far 
out. It's, it was much closer. So he left that to the government, including all his, it was called the Chater Collection, which included pictures, China, Japanese wear, and a whole host of other stuff. It was basically then taken over by the Admiralty of the government. They they allocated it over to the to the Admiralty. And after the Second World War, it was brought back into the government's possession, um, having been occupied by by the Japanese Japanese officers actually, and they'd converted a couple of the very big rooms into Japanese rooms. So there was a lot of extra wood panelling and Japanese features about the house. Anyway, it caught fire, burnt down, and Admiralty had to move. Well, as it happened, Buxy Lodge, Sir HN Modi's house, who was also Sir Paul's partner, Buxy Lodge was empty. And so the Hong Kong government requisitioned it and made that into Admiralty House. And I have found government documents stating that they were planning on rebuilding Marble Hall and it would probably only take a couple of years. So Admiralty House would only temporarily be Buxy Lodge. After that, Buxy Lodge is then earmarked for demolition because they want to build flats. And the officers who were occupying Buxy Lodge at the time actually put a petition together to try and save Buxy Lodge, A, for its its historical value, and B, because they didn't think that the building that the government were planning on building there at the time was going to be big enough to take what the people that they had currently in Buxy Lodge. And if I could just quote just a very small thing from one of these documents... In fact, Marble Hall was earmarked for rebuilding in 1947 after the fire in 1946. But the most shocking and downright catastrophic decision the Hong Kong government took was to say, whilst acknowledging the connection between Buxy Lodge and the Hong Kong University's benefactor, Sir Hormuz C. Modi, we should say that in the government's opinion, the building is not of sufficient architectural or historical merit to justify preservation. I mean, smack these people round the head. <laughs> what were they thinking? When was it first that you discovered that you were related to Sir Catchick Paul Chater? Around 2000, I had my son and I suddenly realised that I didn't have any knowledge about my father's side of the family. He didn't speak about it when he was alive and I had no uncles or chater cousins that I knew of at that time. So it was all a case of having to start from scratch. My mother was alive at the time and able to give me very small bits of information, but actually even she didn't know very much either. But once I found that there was uh, an India connection, my father was born in Calcutta along with his brother, I realised I could find out certain amounts of information from the British Library in London. So I made myself available and went off up there and spent uh, a good sort of a year, 18 months regularly going up and, and researching uh, not just my chater line, but also I realised that there were an awful lot of other chaters in Calcutta and India generally. And one of those names I came across was Catrick Paul Chater. And at that time, I didn't know anything about him. One of the notes at the British Library referred me to a who's who. And quite early on, I looked for a biography and there was nothing. You know, I can find snippets. I can find bits of information of his success with the prior reclamation or creating Hong Kong land, Hong Kong Electric or the dairy farm or being part of the tram company or the ferry company. But could I find a biography? No, I couldn't. So, so 
as part of my bigger project, which was to ensure that I was also researching other chaters, I started a little website. A little website? Yeah, a little website. I did. It was small. It was small at the time. And every time I found something, I'd just stick it on there. So if we can say now, if, if you wanted to have a look at what Liz has done over the years. Uh, can people have a look at your website? Is it openly yes. available? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, ChaterGenealogy.com uh, is the website where I have a lot of, actually, that's actually Armenian uh, records and information and history. So if you were, I mean, you say that your father came from India yes. with his brother. Um, now, they were based in India, but if you were Armenian, I mean, without going into yes. the entire... Uh, somewhat troubled Armenian history. Um, if if you are Armenian, where do you absolutely originally come from? Well, certainly with the India stroke Asia based Armenians, we're talking Persia, we're talking present day Iran, basically, New Julfa, Bushir, uh, Shiraz. They were traders. Armenians traded in and out of India. And so. In what? Oh, in anything, anything that they could make a profit in. So, you know, silks, cottons, um, spices, you name it, they did it. And they did it very well. So what do you do down here in Totten? What do I do? <laughs> <laughs> when I want spices, I nip up the shop and go and get them. <laughs> so with, um, so they would do spice. I mean, it sound, always sounds a bit romantic, but it, it would does. have been quite difficult. I'd have thought there would have been long travel involved. Oh, yes, huge amounts of travel. And, I mean, I don't... I don't specialise in the merchant side of it. I specialise only in the family history side of it. There are some brilliant, you know, academic scholars, historians who have written some fantastic work. I mean, one who springs to mind who's really cutting edge at the moment is Sebu Aslanian. He has just really taken Armenian history and turned it on its head. His history gives me the ability to be able to stretch out the family history side of things. Yeah, he puts the meat on the bones, you know. I create, I, I find the bones, he sticks the meat on them almost, really. But certainly with the, uh, with the Indian uh, Armenians who, who ended up settling in, in Calcutta, or in fact, Madras, Bombay, the major centres of uh, Surat as well, other major centres of trade, uh, generally speaking, they came from Julfa, they came from Persia. And, and in Sakachik Paul Chater's case, I mean, if we go back, when does he first come to Hong Kong and when was he born in Calcutta? And do you know his lineage before that? I'm working on that, actually. <laughs> I am working on that. Um, he, he was born in Calcutta in 1846, in September. So this is a... 2016 is an anniversary. It is, yes, <laughs> yes. In fact, the Armenian church who inherited the residue of his estate after his bequests and things. They've just come back from doing a little uh, remembrance service at the graveside in Happy Valley to remember Sir Paul on his birthday. A self-made man. When Sir Paul was only nine years of age, he lost both his father and mother within a few months of each other. There was no pension attached to his father's post, so that the family found themselves in very poor circumstances. Through the kindly influence of the family physician, however, Paul Chater was enabled to enter La Martinere School, Calcutta, as a foundationer. At his books and in the realm of sport, the lad soon showed what he was made of. He became a prefect and captain of the Cricket Eleven, besides passing the special examination for the Indian Survey Department. However, he never entered the Survey Department, as one of his sisters persuaded him to 
try his luck in Hong Kong. And what sort of family did he have? I mean, was there quite a few siblings? Or he had a very large family. He was one of thirteen. All those, yeah, some of the early ones died. He was very close to his eldest sister, um, the firstborn, who was called Anna. And she married into another Armenian family, and they were from Madras. He was a share and bullion broker. His name was Paul Jordan. He actually was trading in Hong Kong as a bullion and share broker. And Anna would travel between Hong Kong and Calcutta, depending whether she was pregnant or not. Um, she tended to prefer to have her children in India, presumably because that's where the family network was. And it was because of them that uh, Sir Paul Chater, as he was just ordinary Paul Chater then, left school uh, in Calcutta, left Le Martiniere School and travelled to Hong Kong and went to stay with his sister, the Jordans, and his nephews and nieces, who actually became almost like his brothers and sisters. And his sister was so much older than him by nearly 20 years that she was more like a mother than a sister. So her children were actually more like brothers and sisters to Sir Paul than nephews and nieces. And they were incredibly close. In my photo album, I've got a photograph of the uh, the Jordan family sitting on the steps of Chater Bungalow uh, in Kowloon in the sort of late 1880s. And there's loads of them. And it's just lovely that, you know, he had such a wonderful family network when he was... He had such a terrible start. You know, he was the... He was the barefoot orphan Armenian boy from Calcutta who had no family after the age of 10. His parents died. His father drowned in the Hooghly trying to save somebody who'd got into difficulty. Hooghly? The Hooghly River in Calcutta. And then two years, less than two years later, his mother died clearly of a very nasty, exotic illness. When Sir Paul Chater came over to Hong Kong from, from Calcutta, he was on an Armenian ship. It was it was called the Lightning and it was an Apcar line ship. And in fact, that got hit by a storm just outside Singapore. The journey from India on a sailing ship with auxiliary steam power took three months, owing to the propeller being put out of order during a storm. Sir Paul ended up um, kind of kicking his heels a bit in Singapore. and How old was he at this time? Um, I think he was about 18, just perhaps 17, nearly 18. When the vessel reached Singapore, young Chater and a friend went in search of fresh fruits and finding themselves in a pineapple plantation where Tanglin Barracks now stand, the two lads sat down and enjoyed a free feast until discovered by the Chinese owner, who, however, was easily pacified with a few cents. And what languages would he have had at the time? He would have had uh, English, because Lamarck would have been speaking and teaching in English. He would have kept his native Armenian. He would probably be speaking uh, Bengali or... Um, Hindu as well. At that time, a lot of the students, the children, they had to have more than one language. You know, it was a cosmopolitan area of the world. They were trading in so many different things. I mean, many of the wills that I read um, in relation to Indian-Armenian family history quite often have been written in Hindustani, or maybe Portuguese, because the person who is making the world, the testator, does not understand English, but will understand a common language, particularly if they're Armenian, because they're, 
the Armenian language stuck within the Armenian community. They didn't trade in in the Armenian language. They had to trade in a common language. That was either English or Portuguese, really. So he's on this ship that gets stuck by a storm. But, I mean, it's interesting. He was, he was orphaned very young. He would have had to have independence very young. Um, yes. It was quite frightening. Um, but he was also multilingual, something that would also stand him in very good stead mm. to start trading in Hong Kong. Yes, indeed. Um, when he landed, uh, he obviously had to get a job. And this is where I think his uncle, Paul Jordan, probably came into his own here because he, he'd already been in Hong Kong for some time. He'd got contacts. He, I think he probably got the job for Sir Paul. First position here. Soon after his arrival in this colony on April 1st, 1864, young Chater obtained a position on probation in the Bank of Hindustan on a salary of $50 a month. Young Chater's luggage consisted of a chest of drawers, which was up to the last among his most cherished possessions at his home, Marble Hall, in Conduit Road. Young Chater lived with his sister and brother-in-law until they left the colony towards the end of 1864. His salary was then increased to $100 and he moved into a cheap boarding house in Wyndham Street. He obviously had a, a particular bent for it, you know, because he did really well very, very quickly. And one of the um, interesting little anecdotes that I have discovered uh, as I've been doing the research is that um, the then uh, manager of the Hong Kong Shanghai Bank, Victor Kresner, um wanted Sir Paul to go and join him at the bank. Um, but Sir Paul decided, no, he wanted to go out on his own and go and do his own brokerage and develop his career for himself. But can you imagine how things would have been different if he had joined HSBC? <laughs> From his early days, Paul Chater had far-seeking ideas of the possibilities of Hong Kong as a leading port. He used to spend evening after evening in a sampan after dusk ostensibly fishing. He was actually taking soundings on the Hong Kong side of the harbour with a view to finding deep waters where ocean-going steamers could go alongside without fear of running aground, as was so frequently the case when ships came alongside the West Point in those days. Finally, his efforts were rewarded, as a result of which the Hong Kong and Kowloon Wharf and Go Down Company was formed by the Sassoons, Jardine and Chater. What would you do if you were going to do a quick Sakachik Paul Chater list? It would be Hong Kong land. Yeah, Hong Kong land, the prior reclamation, which, you know, has just transformed Hong Kong and made it into the biggest financial hub in the world, um, which he sort of uh, gave a premonition to, actually. Statute Square, as it was then, but obviously doesn't have the statues in now apart from thomas jackson of course um but you know that was his idea that was something that came to him when he was unveiling the statue or not he wasn't but he was part of the unveiling of the statue of queen victoria when she was plumped right in the middle of, of statute square and he suddenly thought well actually let's make this a royal square let's make this into an area where we can pay tribute to our royal heritage if you like i mean it might be sort of frowned upon or poo-pooed about now these days in in the 21st century but you have to remember that hong kong was desperately loyal colonial uh little island who really just was just an extension of london and and you only have to take a look at the cenotaph in hong kong it's a direct replica 
of the Cenotaph in Whitehall in London. And that was, but you know, not a coincidence. That was a deliberate act to make sure that they could replicate the way in which they remembered the war dead. And Sir Paul was one of those, as he was on many committees, one of those people on the committee to make sure that the um, the Cenotaph in, in Hong Kong actually was finished and completed. You know, developing Kowloon. When he was in Hong Kong, it was barren. It was just rocks and beach and maybe a few huts. He built his little, well, it wasn't so little, actually. He built his bungalow uh, in Kowloon on a, quite a substantial plot of land. But actually, he bought that plot jointly with his brother, Joseph. Joseph and he were actually quite a formidable pair of businessmen together in Hong Kong around the sort of 1870s, 1880s. Unfortunately, Joseph died in 1886 and it must have been another one of those dreadful, you know, exotic uh, illnesses um, because he was just taken too young. I think he was in his 30s. But together, they were doing an awful lot. You know, again, the records that I've received just this week and other records that I've also managed to acquire in the past indicate to me that, you know, the early days of Sir Paul's time, he was working very much with his younger brother, Joseph, and they were a formidable but very likeable working pair. And I don't doubt that together they would have made a huge difference uh, to the formation of Hong Kong had Joseph survived. His public life. In 1876, Sir Paul Chater was made a Justice of the Peace for the colony. Ten years later, he was elected by his brother justices as their representative in the Legislative Council and was re-elected on three occasions for terms of six years. Since 1896, Sir Paul had been a member of the Executive Council. In 1897, Queen Victoria awarded him the CMG. In 1902, he was made a Knight Bachelor. Ever a devout Freemason, Sir Paul was installed District Grand Master, English Constitution, of Hong Kong and South China in 1882 and continued in office until 1910. He was a member of the Constitutional Club London and the Royal Thames Yacht Club. Sir Paul was the director of more than 20 public companies in Hong Kong. Sir Paul had quite a large portfolio before he started Hong Kong Land. You know, uh, opium? Uh, yeah, he was probably involved in that. Um, Modi, his partner, was definitely involved in that. It was just one of those... It was legal, and it, it was one of those things that um, anyone who was anyone, uh, unfortunately, they traded in it. You know, it, we don't like it today, we don't like to talk about it today, but it was a fact of life. They moved on very quickly from that, realising actually that there was going to be a lot more scope for expanding their businesses by moving into real estate um, and trying to develop the infrastructure of Hong Kong. Sir Paul was passionate about trying to help the local people. Everything that I've read about him isn't about Sir Paul trying to help Sir Paul. Everything I've read about him is Sir Paul trying to help the people in Hong Kong improve their life. He worked really hard to try and make sure that electricity was brought into uh, Hong Kong. He went out exploring for coal so that that coal, when he did find it, 
then powered the electricity plants that he was involved with. Sipor was ever ready to help any deserving cause, and a complete list of his charitable gifts would form a lengthy document. Among the largest were the gifts of fifty thousand dollars for the endowment of the Siemens Institute, twenty-five thousand pounds each to St Andrew's Church, Kowloon, and St John's Cathedral. On the eve of his selling for home on May the fourth last year, he made a gift of two hundred fifty thousand dollars to the University of Hong Kong. So, in front of us, we've got um, we've got here the Honourable Sir Patrick Paulchater, and and he lived from eighteen forty six. To 1926, and here it's it's uh, in uh, a later part of his life. Is that the Legion Donor sort of medal on the front there on his tux? No, that <laughs> uh, that photograph was actually taken just after he'd been knighted. So that's his court dress, um, and it's made of very beautiful lush velvet. Uh, and that's the that's the little medal that he would have aw- been awarded when he was awarded the the, the knighthood. Sir Patrick Paul Chader was born on the 8th of September 1846, so this year is in fact the 170th anniversary of his birth. He was baptised on the 3rd of October 1846 at the Armenian Church in Calcutta. But when I look at his birth name here... Um, yeah, the, the the actual baptism record is written in Armenian. Anything uh, from the beginning of the records, which starts uh, at 1793, right the way up to 1900, all those records are written in Armenian. So I I've had to rely on some very kind, generous people who've managed to do the the translations for me. And one of the things that that's come out of this is that his Armenian name was Kachik. Bogus Asvatsatorian, anglicised to Kachik Paul Chater, and Asvatsatorian has, over the years, been shortened to Satorian, and then to Sator, and then to Chator, and then to Chater. So the anglicisation really started in India because Armenians worked for the British, and they. They couldn't manage the Armenian names, you know. So um, they anglicised everything, and so you really should be Elizabeth Watt, yeah, <laughs> Chater. <laughs> I was I was born in the UK. My father was born in Calcutta, but I was born in the UK. So, so. did you, your father? Did he did he have a sort of Indian no. accent? Or? No, not at all. He had, he was British and a very British clipped accent, you know. Um, actually, and so did Sir Paul, funnily enough. Uh, there was no um, Asian or Armenian accent to the way in which he talked. It was something that, uh, elocution was something that Lamart was very hot the on. school. Yeah, Lamart school was very hot on. So when they produced young men to go out into the colonial world, they all spoke with beautifully... <laughs> toned clipped british accents and he had a very from what i uh, the descriptions that i have managed to find he had a very beautifully deep almost silky voice he was engaging yeah the feeling that i get from what you're describing is he had quite a lot of charisma yes i think he did i mean i'd love to meet him you know if i could, i've had time machine <laughs> please take me back i'd really like to be able but to without meet. the malaria and yeah <laughs> without any of the exotic illnesses yes um yeah rats on the street yeah i don't do rats on the street no not really <laughs> prior reclamation
That Sir Paul was early convinced of the future greatness of Hong Kong may be gathered from this interesting extract from Who's Who in the Far East, published by the China Mail as far back as 1906. In 1884, he started a go-down business at Kowloon, purchasing the sea beach from the government and erecting go-downs. In 1888, amalgamated with Jardine Matheson and Company and established the existing Hong Kong and Kowloon Wharf and Go-Down Company, reclaiming foreshores and erecting present go-downs and wharves. Originated the Prior Reclamation. Information in 1887 by writing to the government and submitting a scheme, which was accepted by marine lot holders. Visited England later and received the sanction of the Secretary of State to carry out the work. The foundation stone being laid at the corner of the existing cricket ground by the Duke of Connaught in 1890. Presented statue of the Duke of Connaught to the colony in commemoration of the event. Work was concluded on the reclamation in 1905. The result being the addition to the colony of considerable foreshore, upon which has been erected some of the finest hongs east of Suez. Was the first to advocate the acquirement of the present new territory on the mainland of China, writing to the government four years before the actual leasing of the territory. Organized an appeal to the government later by the Chamber of Commerce, the China Association, the unofficial members of the Legislative Council, and successfully urged the negotiation for a lease of the territory, which was subsequently granted by China. My thanks to Liz Chater. Next week, Liz tells me about the entrepreneurial skills of Sir Catchick Paul Chater, the businesses he began, but also his passion for horse racing, mansions, and his private life. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.